0: up your Bibles to Luke. The 18th chapter of Luke is what we'll be looking at today. It is good to be back here among you. Gene and I were up in Rochester, Minnesota, and when we got up there last Wednesday, it was 10 degrees warmer there than here. Two days later, we had four inches of snow. The extremes are just amazing to me. Well, this morning I want to preach from this very well-known passage of scripture and hopefully add a new insight or two to its meaning for us. So we'll read Luke 18. Notably, this passage appears in all three of the synoptic gospels, an indication of its importance for us. So which gospel should we pick from? Luke, of course, because Luke was a physician and therefore has an eye for detail. You'll notice that the meditation in your bulletin is from David Livingston. He was a Scottish physician. He and I are both in the Royal College of Physicians, his in Edinburgh, mine in London. All right, we'll read Luke 18, starting with verse 18. And the ruler asked... Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All of these I have kept since my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing. You still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? And he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come. Eternal life. This is the very word of God given to you and by his grace preached to you. Let's start with prayer. Almighty God, we acknowledge that it is only in you true wealth is found. Only in you that security is found. And only in you that eternity can be found. Open now our hearts and minds to see clearly and think clearly about the place of money and of you in our lives. For it's in the strength of Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. In 2020, a man... I doubt any of you have ever heard of a man by the name of Chuck Feeney completed his goal of giving away his nine billion dollar fortune. He was the man who started the airport duty free shops. He kept two million for himself and his wife, thus giving in total 375,000% more than his current wealth. No one else has ever done that. Could you? This passage that we just read has bothered me for decades. Actually, it's greatly bothered me and stressed me. All kinds of concerning questions arise. Am I supposed to sell everything and give it to the poor? Am I keeping all of the commandments from my youth? That one's easy. Could I force a camel through the eye of a needle? If not, how can I be saved? What does all this mean in a society like ours, which is obsessed with money and profit at virtually any cost? And Most disturbing of all, would the answers to these questions lead us to walking away very sad as this Rich young ruler did. So we're going to dissect our way through this passage to be sure that we understand. This, after all, is the very word of God given to us that we might understand him and what he expects from us. In the end, I think you're going to be surprised. Very, very surprised. I hope. But that's the nature of God's right-side-up teaching in our upside-down thinking and culture. The fact that we're surprised reveals much about our true understanding of who God really is. So we start with verse 18. And a ruler asked him, Now who is this ruler? And now you're saying this isn't going to be 30 minutes, is it? (laughs) We only know that he's young. And that he is, as Luke records it in verse 23, extremely rich. Matthew and Mark both record that he had great possessions. So the storyline is a setup. And it involves a ruler, someone who has both power and great possessions. Perhaps a ruling council member like Nicodemus was. But we don't know. What we do know is that he had the very things that men most craved. And often sacrifice their lives and their families for good teacher what must I do to inherit eternal life and Jesus answers him somewhat surprisingly why do you call me good no one is good except God alone so here is the critical question revealed from the very beginning what must I do do We shouldn't scoff at this. It's a question, I think, deeply buried in all of our hearts and our minds. What must I do or what good thing must I do to merit heaven? So all of the people who attended Sunday school are tuned right in now. And that's a blatant advertisement for coming at 9 a.m. to adult education. In my medical practice, I've taken care of many extremely wealthy people. People who are on social media, TV, you would know them right away. Their great wealth leads them to believe they can simply do something or buy whatever it takes to achieve their ends. They believe, in fact, that with enough money, they can even live forever. And some of them have made provisions to have their bodies frozen and their DNA frozen so that they can be resurrected, I guess. But if we change this young ruler's question slightly in the likely manner in which he really meant it, it would be more akin to this. What can I do or what will it cost me to buy eternal life? This immediately reveals this man's heart and his understanding. He thinks he can earn salvation by his works, or perhaps even by it. He believes that either by works or by money, he merits salvation. As if he could do something such that God is now obligated to give him eternal life. He's earned it. You see the problem right away. He assumes that by his works, by his actions or his money, he can get what he wants. And being a ruler and a rich man, he does what all powerful rich people do. He goes to the most powerfully placed person he can find to get what he wants. Jesus. He has enough respect to call him good teacher. Mark records that he actually ran up and knelt before Jesus to ask his question. So why does Jesus answer the way he did? Is this an attempt by the rich young ruler at flattery? He doesn't call him rabbi or lord. He calls him good teacher. In the Greek, Jesus answers the man with a question. And in the original Greek, it would have this emphasis. Why do you call me good? Only God is good. Jesus answers with a redirection, a move away from what this man should do to what is good and what his heart should actually seek after. Surprising to those who were listening is that what Jesus is saying here isn't that he isn't just a good teacher. Rather, He is God. By saying only God is good, he is telling this rich man that he, Jesus, is God himself. Recognize what this is. This is a theophany. The point is that doing to be thought good and meritorious is a foolish thing and a fool's errand. Jesus instead points him by his answer, not to what he can do, but to himself, the one who is good and to whom our attentions and our desires should be focused. Jesus answers the man's question in verse 20 and tells him, if you want to be saved, keep all the commandments. And again, for us who know the full story, this is shocking Is Jesus really saying that salvation can come by keeping all the commandments? Sunday school attendees? The answer is yes. That's exactly what he's saying. Notice the emphasis, though, to this man. Because this rich ruler believes, as revealed in his opening question to Jesus, that he can earn eternal life by his deeds, by his keeping of the commandments. By the answer to that question, what must I do? He believes he's good enough and actually merits reward. And remarkably, again, revealing who this ruler really is, he responds that he's kept all of the commandments and perfectly so. Gene and I in our street evangelism have met one and only one person who has said this to us, and it <laughs> kind of took us aback. I don't sin. I've kept everything perfectly so. In fact, he says since his youth in verse 21. By now, if I had been there, I'd be inching away from this guy, thinking a thunderbolt or an earthquake or something is bad as bad is about to happen, as when Rachel read, in Exodus 20, when the Ten Commandments were given. And indeed, something very bad is about to happen. How does Galatians 3, 10-13 answer his question? Paul writes, For all who rely upon the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, it is evident, Paul goes on to say that no one is justified before God by the law for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not a faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone was hanged on a tree. The point is that one could theoretically be saved by keeping the law, but only if perfectly kept, which isn't possible as was pointed out this morning and we discussed because of our original sin. So, in fact, it is not possible for any of us to be saved by keeping all of the commandments in some idea that we would have that would be perfect. Except for Christ, who did keep the law perfectly and hence could be the perfect lamb without blemish or spot. And that is why the law is a curse, because man cannot keep it. Strive as hard as you want and you cannot keep it. In fact, I think the young ruler hangs himself by his own testimony here, his own false witness. Telling Jesus in his opinion, he's indeed perfectly kept the commandments, which, of course, is a lie an evidence of extreme self-righteousness. In fact, isn't it remarkable how the human mind can build what seems like a perfectly airtight case to protect ourselves and fool ourselves? J.C. Ryle, in response to this ruler's answer, wrote this an answer more full of of darkness and self-ignorance is impossible to conceive. He who made it could have known nothing rightly, either about himself or God or God's law. I think he said it right. Nonetheless, Jesus kind of gives him a pass on that and moves on and strikes at the very heart of the matter by revealing the truth about this man's heart. Verse 22. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Notice the word that Jesus chose treasure stored in heaven. We're going to come back to that word. Now, had this been a scene in a movie, I think the the whole set would have fallen silent and the actors shocked because in 27 words, Jesus puts his finger on the heart of the two issues happening in this encounter. And from this, the listener falls silent with new understanding about what happens. It reminded me as I read and studied this of Edgar Allan Poe's words. He said this, Words have no power to impress the mind without the exquisite horror of their reality. And Jesus has indeed just made plain both the exquisite horror and the futility of trying to merit salvation by doing, by a keeping of the law, and has now made clear their reality. In fact, ironically enough, as I mentioned Before, the rich ruler's response that he had kept all the commandments is a lie, a false witness and in and of itself a violation of the ninth commandment that Rachel read earlier. He likely also violated the eighth commandment to not steal and its corresponding positive side of being generous, else he likely would not have been extremely rich with great possessions. And so Jesus, knowing where this man's heart really is, gives him the remedy to his sin sickness, a sickness that's going to land him in everlasting perdition. Jesus tells him, you lack one thing, one single barrier, that if you overcome it, you will gain eternal life. Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come. Follow me. Notice the sequence here. Sell it all. Give it to the poor. In other words, people unlike yourself. And follow me. Jesus brilliantly answers the young ruler's question. By holding up a mirror. Such that this wealthy man of great possessions. Can now see himself with clarity and to answer the question for himself. Is Jesus what he really wants? Or is it his great wealth and possessions that he wants? The truth comes screaming in at this point. Verse 23. For Luke records this, but when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Now recall verse 22, that Jesus spiced the deal here. Telling the ruler if he did this, it wasn't like he was simply going to go from rich to poor. No, Jesus tells him plainly that if he does this, he'll have even greater treasure than what he owns now in heaven and for all eternity. But, it means being rich in Christ's way, not the culture's way. And with I imagine, begrudging clarity, the rich young ruler walked away very sad. Philip Ryken, in his commentary on this passage, notes something interesting. Rather than telling the rich ruler to do something, Jesus tells him to get rid of something. It would be an act, he said, of subtracting all the things that were standing in the way of his entrance to the kingdom of heaven. Does Christ's lesson here dawn on us? Are we ridding ourselves of those things that stand in the way of our gaining true treasure in heaven, of giving our lives to Christ and to following him? You see, and this is where I think this passage most often gets misunderstood. It isn't the money, per se, that's the problem here. Rather, it's the place and meaning attached to money that's the problem. The issue is not one of wealth and riches, but of trusting in those over Jesus. So is the lesson that we should sell everything we have and give it to the poor so that we can get to heaven? Is that the message? No, no, and no. That is not the message. Without a call from Christ to do that in your life, that would simply be doing. It would be a futile works based type of trying to earn salvation. If I do this great thing, surely Christ would see my merit and I will be ushered through heaven's gates that kind of thinking is why I called this message the foolishness of anything but God. But works and wealth is not what is being taught here. And I hasten to add there are individuals, many of them, who are called to this. As hard as it would be to even imagine heirs and heiresses who have turned away from fabulous wealth and turned to Christ, to the mission field like David Livingston, or to using the money to bind up the injured, to feed the poor, and to care for the widow and the orphan. Look at Zacchaeus in Luke 19, 1-10. He gave up fabulous wealth to follow Jesus. But the lesson is this. Whatever stands between you and Christ is an idol. And it's to be destroyed, eliminated, discarded. If there's something between you and the command follow me we must pray earnestly for the faith to put it in its proper place such that we really could follow our lord for the truth is that absolute faith in christ requires that we do give up many things this upside-down culture reveres matthew 6:19 through 21 and verse 24 makes this very clear notice the word I asked you to remember do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves cannot break in and steal Now of verse 21, which makes the matter crystal clear. For where your treasure is,
1: there your
0: heart will be also. Bingo. This is the critical key that opens up our understanding of this passage. He elaborates further, verse 24. No one can serve two masters. I'm still in Matthew. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You simply cannot serve God and money. There it is. Worshipping wealth means you cannot worship God in the way he must be worshipped. You've made money and possessions, your God, and your heart is not with God, but with the security of possessions. But what if you were given this command by Jesus to sell everything and give it to the poor? Would you, so to speak, pass the test? The answer takes us to the heart of this teaching narrative. And I believe it's this. We are to meditate and pray very, very deeply about this question. Who and what? Is the ultimate ruler, the ultimate security, the ultimate authority in my life. To what do I attach the most importance in my life? Where does my heart really lie? It's like being that monkey who reaches through the trap door to grab the banana inside the cage, but the door is too small to get his hand and the banana out. But he refuses to let go of the banana. Money is like that banana for us. So we stubbornly cling to false notions about the security of money, of our possessions. An interesting thing to me, and now I'm doing it, is we notice people move to Florida. They don't have basements. Their garages are so full of stuff, they can't park their cars. And when I go into my neighborhood who I've gotten to know, I said, when's the last time you touched this stuff? I don't know. A decade? But I feel good knowing my possessions are here. But but your car is being ruined. (laughs) Bananas. What is it going to be? Let our grip on the banana go? Or the good life that Christ promises? Treasure on earth or treasure in heaven? The Bible, by the way, has much to say about wealth and its place in our lives. Proverbs 18.10 has this to say about the false security of wealth. The name of the Lord, you know this verse, is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. The wealth of the rich is their fortified city. They imagine it an unscalable wall. For those who place Christ first, the words of Psalm eighteen two ring in our ears. The, rock, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. He's my shield and the horn of my salvation. He's my stronghold. For those who reject Christ as foremost in their lives, the words of Zechariah 9, 3 will be true as it was for Tyre. Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like mud of the streets. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power and she shall be devoured by fire. There's the contrast. Which is it going to be for us? As I've mentioned, many have misinterpreted this passage. Is it a requirement to sell everything? To do a good work in order to gain salvation. Again, to be clear, no, let me relieve you of that. It took decades for me to relieve myself of that. It took seminary for me to relieve myself of that. That is not what is being universally taught here. What is clear from this passage is that anything that stands in the way between us and Christ is what we need to get rid of. Whether it be job title, great possessions, whatever it would be. The true requirement for salvation has nothing to do with works. It has nothing to do with merit. It doesn't even consist in doing and hoping that it will be seen as merit warranting salvation. The true requirement is putting absolute total complete trust faith in Jesus and letting go of our precious little bananas next time I preach this I'm going to bring a banana as a prop. <laughs> so why so much emphasis on money in scripture this this really bothered me I grew up very very poor and as a physician We weren't rich, but we had a good living. Money turns out to be the common idol for those who are very wealthy. That's why in in verses 24 and 25, Jesus makes the statement somewhat funnily that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to go to heaven. But notice something interesting here. Scripture says that Jesus looked at him with sadness. I found that really interesting. The point is that Christ longs for us to see, truly see, that the things that we attach our hopes and our dreams to, like money and possessions, don't save. They suffocate. They don't save suffocate the disciples watching and overhearing all of this verse 26 are aghast those who heard it it's recorded said then who can be saved they're astonished after all doesn't this culture as it did those millennia ago teach that great riches are evidence of God's favor Again, no, no, and no. But that is how we think in this upside-down culture. And it is suffocating. But the question they asked was the right one. Well, then, who can be saved? And it's critical that we hear this answer. Because the, the answer to sell everything and give it to the poor and follow me, for most of us, is we would walk away sad. Listen to how Matthew phrases it. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man, with you and I, it's impossible. He knows our hearts. It's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Jesus told the truth. It's impossible with man. Not one single person can or ever will be saved without the saving grace of God. Money can't buy it. Great power can't command it. Impressive works can't cause it. It is Christ and Christ alone. Solely Christos. Only Christ. How do we know this? Look at verse 27. What's impossible with men is possible with God. When the powerful grace of God came upon Peter, James, and John, they did in Luke 5.11 what Scripture records. They left everything, all their possessions. They left their livelihood, their fishing boats, and they followed Jesus. In verse 28, this same Peter says to Jesus, See? We left our homes and followed you. Little piece of merit. Kind of still stuck in his heart. That's the way we're built. Look at me. I did good things. Jimmy Kimmel says in a comedic way, he said, I always do good things as long as the cameras are rolling. And It's true. Peter says, we left everything and followed you. What then will we have? What will we get from doing that? And Jesus answers the question plainly, straightforward. Verses 29-30. Truly I say to you, there's no one who's left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come. You get a 200% return. You will get many things more in this time and for eternity. And there's the answer to any doubt we might have. Is Jesus worth following? If it were to even cost us this. And he gives us a guarantee. Better than your bank. Better than the market. It's an absolute promise. He's never going to invest in bonds that won't pay. You will never lose by giving up for God what you cannot keep in order to gain what you cannot lose. Jim Elliott knew that. And he gave his life for that. And now you know. But notice something else about verse 29 to 30. It turns out, as I said, that this is a double promise. But not in the way the false teachers, the prosperity preachers mislead millions. And J.C. Ryle again comments on the meaning of this many times more statement. He says the believer shall find in Christ a full equivalent for anything that he's obliged to give up for Christ's sake. He shall find peace and hope and joy and comfort and rest in communion with the Father and the Son. His losses shall be more than counterbalanced by his gains. In short, the Lord Jesus Christ shall be more to him than property or relatives or friends. Brothers and sisters, and to all who can hear my voice, who are near or who are far away from God, there is only one who loves you flawlessly. Only one who gave his life for you. Only one who dared to die for your sins. Only one who will send his spirit to breathe life into our dead souls. Only one who can give you peace, hope and comfort. And only one who has the keys to the kingdom of heaven and can bring you in. Worshipping money will only take and destroy. Christ can give you true treasure that will never be destroyed. Now. A surprise ending that I promised you. Lean in. (laughs) This is not me coming up with a new interpretation. This is what scholarly Reformed theologians have mined from this. In Reformed theology, we understand a concept called typology. Typology simply means that God in Scripture uses other persons or events that prefigure or serve as a type of a future person or event to come. The anti-type is that person or event that fully expresses the truth of what came before. For example, Moses is a type of Christ who leads Israel out of literal slavery. But the anti-type Christ is the only one who actually and fully and completely leads leads his people out of eternal slavery, that is, sin. You get the idea now, type and anti-type. So in our passage today, the rich young ruler is a type. And as a type, he could not meet or fulfill the request made. He could not put Christ first by demonstrating that money wasn't his God. By selling everything and giving it to the poor. But the anti-type is Jesus the Christ. The true rich ruler. Who while possessing everything. Who held in his hands the greatest power. And was above all other rulers. Gave up everything. In essence, selling everything. And giving it to us, the poor in spirit and who himself became poor in possessions and spirit, that you and I might be eternally rich. Amen? Amen. You see the point. Jesus is the rich young ruler who gave up everything for us so that we would become rich. He's the anti-type. 2 Corinthians 3.16 says this, But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And I'll add peace and hope. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed. We're becoming like him from one degree to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. The point is that we can't give up on our idols on our own. But where the spirit of the Lord is. In our regenerated hearts, the veil is lifted and we become transformed by degree into the image of Christ. That is, we see the truth that Jesus is God and that true riches, true security, true peace of mind. Indeed, I would say truth itself are found in him and him only. Let me wrap up now here. Jesus is the rich young ruler who not only could, but did. Paving the only way for us to make him first because it is impossible with man and thereby gaining eternal treasure in heaven. So you have the five applications that I came up with on your sheet there. Riches are a trap and a snare that will block our way to heaven if, We trust in them more than Christ itself. Don't let it be the banana that keeps us in the cage. What is impossible, number two, with man is possible with Christ. We can't do what is required for our salvation on our own. Only Christ can, who veils us in his righteousness. Number three, the reason is that Christ is the rich ruler who gave it all up for our sake making it possible for us to follow him and inherit the unfathomable riches now and throughout eternity who literally bought our way into heaven for us. Number four, Luke 9.25 asks the question, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits his very soul? point is Matthew 6 24 makes is that no man can serve two masters. No one can serve both God and money. It is one or the other. And lastly, Matthew 6 19 to 21 gives us an explicit command and a warning. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves steal. But lay for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves can never break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be. It begs the question for each of us, where is our treasure? Heaven or earth? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Thank you for your patience with us. Thank you that you lead us to eternal riches that are truly secure. Like the disciples, Lord, we cry out, increase our faith, because in reality we're poor and pitiful on our own, grasping onto that which cannot save or even offer security. Thank you, Lord, that you became poor in order to bring us to heaven with you with profound gratitude for our very lives, Lord. We thank you and love you. Amen. Thank you, Greg. You stand with me. We'll sing one stanza, one stanza only. tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. Stand with me.